0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. We've said goodbye to this week's guests, but I wanted to let you know what's coming up on this week's show. We're covering the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank collapse in the US. Some really, really amazing unpacking of all the complexity of this story into a really clear picture of what's happened and what we can expect to happen next. HSBC stepping in to buy Silicon Valley Bank UK. We hear from someone who's directly involved in that process to really understand how it happened and what we think the ramifications are going to be for these companies banking with now HSBC. And Succession's Logan Roy is ringing in the London Stock Exchange. We're talking about the relevance of Bells and all sorts of other interesting things. So we'll get into all this and much more on today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. (music)
1: This episode is brought to you by Global Processing Services. At Global Processing Services, the expert partner in issuer processing, they take your security seriously. Their game-changing fraud advantage tool powered by FeatureSpace assesses fraud risks in milliseconds and uses AI and machine learning to constantly adapt to stay ahead of emerging fraud threats. With their array of available fraud solutions at your fingertips, you can feel secure with GPS as your payment processing partner. Find out more at www.globalprocessing.com forward slash fraud management. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me back.
1: Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider, whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem.
3: This is packed out, right? It's standing
1: moment. We are bringing After Dark to the steel yard in london on the 29th of march click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com forward slash after dark thank you very much for joining us everybody good night
0: Welcome to episode 718 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Global Strategy Director of Customer Experience at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my 11FS co-host, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research at 11FS. Thanks for being here, Benjamin. What have you been up to lately? I feel like you've been very, very busy this week. I've barely seen you at all.
4: (laughs) Hello, Kate. Well, we've had a couple of... uh, Really interesting projects that have been wrapping up this week. There's one we've been doing all about onboarding for fintechs and how large companies that partner with fintechs can make it easier uh, for fintechs to become customers and smoothen out that experience. And interestingly, it's really very much like the experience of getting a mortgage or whatever. It's just too hard and there are lots of ways to make it easier. Uh, we've been doing some really interesting work around wealth, you know, looking at uh, trying to improve wealth journeys for customers in, in variety of different markets. So yeah, we just got a ton of a ton of really interesting projects uh, going on. And you Sometimes you get this phase where you've got one group of projects ending and another group starting so yeah busy busy week
0: well nice to nice to see you thanks for making the time making a welcome return to fintech asider we also have alex johnson creator of fintech takes welcome back to the show alex always a a great pleasure to have you with us could you give our audience a reminder about you and fintech takes please
3: yeah thanks for having me back um fintech takes is a newsletter sort of analyzing the collision of banking and technology um and uh I I write it two times a week, and uh, there's been plenty to write about lately, as I'm sure we'll be getting into.
0: Absolutely. Um, And finally, we also have another very welcome FinTech Insider return for Mike Carter, Head of Platform Lending at Innovate Finance. Welcome back to the show as well, Mike. What should our listeners know about you and your role at Innovate Finance, please?
2: Thanks also for inviting me back, Kate. Um, Just as a recap, Innovate Finance represents the FinTech industry in the UK. I look after all of our members who lend to the SME market. I also look after our capital and investment programme for FinTech. And separately, I'm also chairman of a peer-to-peer lending company.
0: Brilliant. Well, yeah, definitely looking forward to getting your perspectives on the news as well. And with that, let's get into the news. So unsurprisingly, there's really only one place we could start this week's news, and we're going to give up the first half of our show to cover that as fully as we can. So... Silicon Valley Bank has been closed by regulators as the FDIC takes control. We took this one from the Wall Street Journal, but it's been basically everywhere. Um, So Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on Friday the 10th of March in the second biggest bank failure in US history. A run on deposits doomed the tech-focused lenders' plans to raise fresh capital. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation took control of the bank via a new entity it created called the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara, All of the bank's deposits have been transferred to the new bank, the regulator said. The bank is the 16th, one-sixth largest in the US with some $209 billion in assets as of December 31st, according to the Federal Reserve. It is by far the biggest bank to fail since the near collapse of the financial system in 2008, second only to the crisis era collapse of Washington Mutual. Well, really looking forward to all of your takes on this, but Alex, I'm going to come to you first as you've been covering the fallout of this news in the U.S. So, I mean, kick us off. How did we get to this point?
3: Yeah, um, basically, there are three parts to the story. So I'll run through each part real quick. Um, but the it really starts in, you know, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, With the pandemic. And um, what we saw between 2019 and 2022 was an unprecedented surge in deposits going to U.S. banks, right? So um, based on an analysis that I saw, banks in the U.S. pulled in something like $2.4 trillion more in deposits during that three-year period than they would have expected to otherwise, right? And that was due to uh, government interventions around uh, stimulus checks to consumers, uh, you know, stimulus checks to small businesses, and then just the low interest rate environment. When we knocked rates down to zero, a lot of money flowed into the market, which was the intention. Um, And in particular, as relevant to um, Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of money flowed from investors to uh, venture capital firms, which then got poured into, early stage tech companies. So everyone is flush with cash. Um, SVB itself, I think during that period between 2019 and 2022, tripled its deposits uh, during that time. And so it had just a massive amount of deposits. And you know, obviously, the thing that every bank wants to do with deposits is put those into loans. The challenge for uh, SBV in particular is that it's never really had a super robust lending business. Um, You know, tech startups don't tend to make the best lending customers for a variety of reasons. They have a lot of cash on hand. They have sort of a weird credit profile that's difficult to lend to. And so SBV historically has never been a huge lender. And so it had all these extra deposits on hand. What it and many other banks decided to do with that money was uh, pour it into securities. And so a lot of them invested in securities. And what was interesting about that is the securities were both um, very safe in the sense that they were mostly treasury bonds, uh, you know, very sort of normal mortgage-backed securities. I know that's a scary phrase given everything that happened in 2007, 2008, but these mortgage bonds are actually very safe. Uh, the challenge, though, is that um, because they were doing that at a time when interest rates were very low... The only way to get significant yield was to buy very long-term fixed interest rate uh, securities, and so they had all these securities sitting on their books. The duration of those was very, very long, and then interest rates shot up. And when interest rates shot up, uh, all of these securities, uh, their value essentially went underwater, right? And so, you know, I think from what I saw across the entire banking sector, there's this chart that's been making the rounds. Uh, At the end of 2022, uh, the U.S. banks had collectively about $620 billion in unrealized losses on securities sitting on their books. And that was a big, big problem for uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So that's the first part of the story. Um, The second part of the story is deposits flowing back out of these banks. And so – Just looking at last year, between March and December of last year, roughly $25 billion in deposits left Silicon Valley Bank. And um, that was due to a combination of factors that every bank saw, right? Rates became more competitive. Deposits started moving around a little bit more in search of yield. But it was particularly bad for SVB because all of their clients, these tech startups, didn't have... um, You know, a lot of new money coming in. They were burning through the cash that they had. And, you know, tech startups tend to be uh, a very volatile group. And so as the tech sector cooled off, a lot of those deposits just sort of burned away. And that left SVB in a really difficult situation where essentially they didn't have enough uh, capital on hand to cover all of the deposits that were flowing out of the bank. And so this all came to a head last week. Uh, On Thursday – actually, on Wednesday of last week, they attempted to raise additional money by uh, selling more equity in the bank. Um, They actually had some commitments to do that, but they weren't able to button up all of those commitments before they had to announce it to the market. And once they announced it to the market, the third part of this story is Twitter, essentially. And, uh, you know, all of the uh, the VCs uh, that were... Uh, either direct customers of Silicon Valley Bank or whose portfolio companies were direct customers of Silicon Valley Bank, basically all started sending each other messages on Twitter, on WhatsApp, and it became a run on the bank. And on Thursday, uh, because of all of the money that was getting pulled out, I think it was about $42 billion uh, in deposits that left in a single day. And again, Silicon Valley Bank in the normal course of operations lost $25 billion over three quarters of last year, and then $42 billion vanished in a single day. Um, and that was the run on the bank that essentially put them in the position where the FDIC had to step in Uh, For context, just to compare it to the last time we had this problem with a large bank, when Washington Mutual uh, went bust in September, I think, of 2008, um, they saw about $16 billion leave over the course of nine days. And that was enough to sink Washington Mutual. So this run on the bank happened about 23 times faster than it had happened the last time we had one of these on a major bank. And uh, the FDIC essentially had to step in at that point.
0: That's uh, an awesome summary. Thank you so much. I mean... That's a great scene, I suppose, for what's happened up to this point. What have been the ramifications for the wider US system financially?
3: Yeah, um, I think the the wider impact was sort of twofold. One, there was concern over the weekend uh, between when the FDIC stepped in initially to take over SVB and when the government stepped in more broadly, there was concern around um, just would this cause a run on other banks, right? I think that one thing that the market generally did not understand is that these uh, unrealized losses had piled up, not just at SVB, but a lot of other banks. And so there was a concern, I think, that uh, if there were runs on additional banks, uh, they too would be in a very challenging liquidity situation, and uh, that's when you started to hear you know, words tossed around like contagion, uh, and that's really what we wanted to try to stop. So uh, not, I think, to anyone's surprise, um, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the Treasury Department – Uh, put out a joint announcement on Sunday night where they said that uh, they would be essentially guaranteeing not only all of the insured deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, uh, but also all of the uninsured deposits, which at Silicon Valley Bank, because they have these tech startups with these massive accounts, that was a majority of the deposits were these uninsured deposits. So the FDIC essentially guaranteed all of the deposits. um, And then in addition, they also announced a new lending program where they would essentially be able to uh, lend liquidity to any other banks that were in a similar situation uh, where those banks could pledge those securities that they have as uh, collateral for those loans. And importantly, they would be able to pledge those securities at the value that they were sort of at on par, meaning when they were purchased originally in a low-rate environment, not at the sort of underwater value that they're at today. So Those two things in combination uh, seem to provide enough reassurance on the part of uh, depositors, at least, that we really didn't see any other significant deposit outflows this week from any kind of large regional banks. So that was the contagion fear that I think we've managed to sort of stem. The other kind of broader concern, though, is – The investment market, the public market, is now much more aware of the sort of fragility, I think, of banks' uh, balance sheets right now. And bank stocks, as a consequence, have been kind of getting hammered. And some of the banks that have been in the toughest position from that perspective are now, I think, in the position of having to have some difficult conversations about maybe being acquired. Again, there's not any sort of massive outflow of deposits, so end customers aren't panicking. But um, the markets, I think, are readjusting their view of what these banks are worth.
0: Okay. No, that's a, that's a really great scene set. Um, obviously when stuff like this happens, everyone wants to allocate blame, uh, or kind of work out like who's, who's responsible. So we put out a poll on the Eleven Fest LinkedIn to give you guys, our listeners, the chance to give your take on it. So we asked who should shoulder the most blame with more than 530 votes, 74% that Silicon Valley bank themselves are responsible. 12% said withdrawing VCs were to blame. 8% said wider market forces and 5% said the social media frenzy. Um, Benjamin what what would you what would you have selected is the bank's failure a sort of a symptom or what or have they caused this themselves
4: in some ways you know the, the bank was a little bit unlucky and as, as Alex summarized it what they were doing in 2019 2010 2020 when they were taking in huge amounts of deposits you know putting those into treasury bonds that's supposed to be the safest thing to do right the problem with treasury bonds is they're in closely linked to interest rates. And the prices of treasury bonds fall basically automatically when interest rates rise because they're worth less. You know, the future revenue, the future earnings on those uh, bonds drops. So, what started as a very safe and sound decision in 2020 turned into a very unsafe decision by 2023. So, where the bank is at fault, um, is in failing to adjust that and failing to recognize the asset liability mismatch that was building up between the short-term deposits it had taken from its customers, most of which were fintechs, as Alex, or many of which were fintechs, as Alex pointed out, and many of which were gradually burning through cash and withdrawing cash, mismatch between that and the long-dated treasury bonds that they were holding. So over the past year, Silicon Valley Bank hasn't responded fast enough to the changing interest rate environment. Now, it's super easy for me to sit here and say, oh, they didn't respond fast enough. I didn't see this coming. Um, I'm not the treasurer of a bank. But I think to that extent, Silicon Valley Bank is to blame. I, I do want to say there are some fantastically good people at Silicon Valley Bank. This is a you know big human story. A lot of great people are at risk of losing their livelihoods. You know There are lots of people who work very hard and do great work inside of Silicon Valley Bank. Um So I don't want to start pointing fingers and saying, you know, it wasn't a bad bank. You know, there's very little sign of wrongdoing here, right? You know, maybe some of the senior executives hold shares when they kind of should have known. But, you know, this isn't a wrongdoing story. It's not like some of the stories we cover on Fintech Insider. Um, I do think some of the VCs were pretty quick to abandon the bank that helped them succeed in the first place. I think if those VCs had rallied around, we might have had a different story. Instead, they are all like, oh, no, let's take our money out. Um as Alex said, incredibly quickly, so the the, the way that some of the big vCs acted, they could have maybe contributed to a different outcome.
0: Mike, I'd love to get your perspective what What have you taken from this this whole mess? what What do you think is the most important thing to take forwards?
2: I mean, a couple of things. and first of all, I think this is just an example of human behavior adapting to the rules that are put in front of it so the the financial crisis. There were two issues. One, the banks were undercapitalized, and two, that you had the asset liability mismatch. They were borrowing short and lending long. And Basel III came in to correct those and it did pretty well. So bank capital ratios are much higher than they were. Risk weightings are higher. So there's a tick in the box there. And liquidity issues were addressed through Basel III as well, which is the point that um, has been discussed around holding liquid securities in order to meet uh, deposit withdrawals. But what has happened then, as we've seen, is some banks, including Silicon Valley Bank, then went for the yield and bought the long-dated bond. So they, they followed the rules, but they then used them to, um, to, to, to maximise their advantage. Other banks could have done that, but they didn't. So unfortunately, it's, it just illustrates how businesses look at the rules and then they change their behaviour in order to fit them. I think they, they possibly could have saved the day with the equity issue last Wednesday. It could have been fully underwritten. It was quite a good ask from the FT at the weekend about this and it was saying one of the lessons from the financial crisis was that when you come out to raise equity for a bank that's in trouble you need to come out with it fully underwritten you can't come out with it and say well some of it's underwritten would you like to join us because at that point confidence is evaporating so i think they only had 25 percent underwritten and that really scared the horses and the equity investors got scared and then obviously the depositors got scared and you you end up in this death spiral, which is fairly unique to, to banks, but that, that's how it plays out.
0: Okay, I'm going to switch our focus now to the ramifications of this in in the UK. So, I suppose our second related story um, under this this whole big issue is from the Financial Times. And that is that HSBC has bought Silicon Valley Bank's UK unit for £1 in a rescue deal. A crisis in Britain's tech sector was averted after HSBC stepped in to rescue Silicon Valley Bank's UK arm in a fire sale sealed after all-night talks led by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Bank of England. Noel Quinn, the chief executive of HSBC, said that the acquisition made excellent strategic sense. The deal, which will see HSBC pay a symbolic £1 for SVB UK, avoids the UK government having to step in to protect depositors. The possible collapse of SVB UK, which has around 3,300 UK clients, including startups, venture-backed companies and funds, had raised fears for the health of Britain's tech and life sciences industries. Um, Mike, fantastic to have you here considering Innovate Finance's key role in striking this deal. So talk us through this. When did you first become aware that action needed to happen?
2: Uh, Well, I guess we were following on Wednesday, at which point it was just a a bank needing to raise equity and it hadn't gone very well. Thursday, you could see from the US that there was a bit of a deposit situation. The UK bank obviously uh, has its own license, and so it wasn't obvious that the UK bank at that point was in jeopardy. But by the time we got to Friday, it was clear the UK depositors were, were also very worried. It was clear the US bank was, was in a lot worse shape than had been realised. And so by about Friday evening, um, we were discussing this internally to innovate finance out whether or not we thought the Bank of England needed to do something extra in order to help confidence around the, the, the bank. Now, as it was, they actually put out a statement on Friday night saying they were going to put uh, SVB UK into some form of insolvency on Sunday night which was not really something that was going to instill confidence. Um, So on on Saturday, there were a lot of phone calls. Janine Hurt, our CEO, was involved in phone calls with government ministers and other parties around this, really reinforcing how important the bank was to to the tech sector, including fintech. So the Bank of England were correct in saying that SVB UK didn't have a pivotal role in the financial system in the UK, but they, um, they hadn't alighted on the fact that they did have a very strategic position in a particular sector. And so we and others um, really pressed this point home on Saturday. I think that all the different government departments had, had realised this by, by Saturday morning and uh, everybody sprang into action.
0: How easy was it to find a buyer? How was that decision made?
2: Well, I guess the fact that it was sold in, in 48 hours – so uh, I'm not saying it was easy, but it was certainly doable. I mean, in another life, I was an M&A banker and I can't recall seeing a deal being done in 48 hours. And buying a financial business, which can have a lot of hidden, hidden liabilities, is, is, is quite a difficult thing to do at short notice. So um, it's, it's a pretty good outcome. You know, HSBC, I would say, have a reputation for being reasonably cautious. So I wouldn't expect them to have bought it even for a pound without having... Uh, you know done sufficient diligence to get comfortable with it i'm old enough to remember when bearings went bust um ing bought it for a pound and subsequently they they acknowledged that one pound they'd overpaid for it so um i think that uh, you know it's it's just a testimony in fact to hb uk that they were able to be acquired at short notice and that, that you know there was a buyer such as hsbc who was prepared to do that
0: I know it's really probably not what we should be focusing on, but I really just want to know in that situation like does one pound actually get transferred from like one bank account to another or does it, do they just turn up with like one single pound coin like in an envelope and, and drop it off like I mean how does it how does it work?
2: I imagine it's an electronic transfer, but I don't know.
0: yeah, it must look a bit mad. Um, Benjamin, what was what was your take on on this story? Is HSBC the big winner here? Yeah,
4: I think there are a couple of winners. Um I mean, this is an outcome that I think, you know, all of us are hoping that we may see in the States yet, yeah, you know, that there may be some kind of belated rescue of Silicon Valley Bank and its assets and its people and so on. Um But yeah, so I think obviously HSBC is a winner, but so too are all the businesses that bank with uh Silicon Valley Bank UK, all of the employees of those businesses and all the customers of those businesses, you know, because we potentially saved, you know, 3300 UK tech and startup businesses. Imagine if all of those companies got wiped out. That would be a huge blow, not just to the UK economy now, but to the future of the UK economy. You know, And that's kind of what's happening in Silicon Valley, right? Is a whole bunch of great businesses in California are currently at risk. So yes, HSBC is a winner. Well done. Fantastic work by HSBC to do that due diligence and quickly figure out what's the risk here. But also a huge win for... All of the companies that bank with um, Silicon Valley Bank in the UK, yeah, so lots and lots of winners compared with the state, the situation in the states where you just got a whole bunch of losers. Sorry, that sounds like a very nationalistic comparison. I don't mean it like that, but you know, taking offense, Benjamin. I'm taking offense right now. (laughs) But but yeah, the collapse of a bank is, is a really bad thing because banks sit at the core of the economy.
0: Alex, I mean, one, I'll give you a chance to come back on that that horrible losers slander. But I suppose I'm interested to get your perspective as well on, you know, do you think HSBC will be able to maintain and look after these customers? Obviously, they were going to SVB for a reason. Like what, what chance do you think HSBC has at successfully banking them in the way that they deserve to be banked?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really good question, right? I I agree uh, with Mike and Benjamin that um, it's a good short-term outcome. And obviously, that's uh, beneficial to the entire tech ecosystem. I think long-term, it is an interesting question because, you know, Silicon Valley Bank has a very deep, and Benjamin sort of referenced this with the people who work there, they have a very deep understanding and empathy with tech startups, right? And and tech startups are a weird type of company to bank, right? I mean, they have lots of capital, but they also burn through lots of capital. They have this equity and this sort of future value that you have to project. A lot of times they want to take out loans or more debt against that potential equity, which is really hard to underwrite and to understand. And so I do think that HSBC will be well served to think about This is not just another segment of sort of business customers that they have, but is a pretty unique segment that can be very high value and can have lots of sort of uh, knock-on benefits to what they can do. But that does need to be treated somewhat uh, differently uh, in a way that sort of uh, understands the unique things about uh, tech-based startups. I I think that's a a very good concern to flag for the, the future.
0: Mike, what would what would your view on that be? You know, do you think what what do you think the future looks like for SVB UK and UK fintech as a whole?
2: No, I mean I think Alex um, is, is right on the on the money there. So the I think the industry is looking at this and saying, you know, we, we're we're really pleased that SVB UK has been rescued, but we are we're cautious because HSBC has a different risk appetite to SVB. I and mean, the reason why SVB has a market share is because they they're able to go out there and do deals that the big banks don't do. And that's partly because they have spent the time building up the industry expertise. And, you know, I know from my days when I worked in banking, when when you took a loan to the credit committee, that's how you've got to persuade. You've got to persuade the credit committee who are not experts in a particular sector. And if they don't get it, then they often aren't going to approve the loan. So I think that the the jury's out in terms of um, what does this mean for products coming out of SVB in the future, Um, I attended a um, call this afternoon that HSBC held for fintech customers of SVB in the UK, um, where there were customers asking questions exactly of this nature, you know, what's the risk appetite of SVB going to be going forward, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they they gave sort of reassuring noises, but, you know, the proof will be in obviously in uh, in, in the actions that people see going forward. Absolutely. Um, oh, sorry, Benjamin.
4: No, I was going to say, I think it's going to be really important to see whether HSBC operates Silicon Valley Bank UK at arm's length or not. Because if they try and integrate it into HSBC too quickly, that could easily, you'll have a huge culture clash. There's a reason why all of these fintechs weren't banking with HSBC in the first place, or you know, or Barclays, or NatWest, or any of the big banks, is they haven't had the appetite, or to Mike's point, made the investment in understanding um, FinTech and other tech companies—they're trying, but they're not there yet. Um, so, how HSBC operates Silicon Valley Bank UK over the next few years uh, is going to have a huge bearing on whether this, with hindsight, looks like a brilliant deal by HSBC or not.
0: Absolutely, definitely one to watch. I mean, Alex, we focused on the US and the UK. I suppose just to round round this section off, you know, what what impact do you think this will have on financial services industry? globally? Is it is it kind of isolated just the UK and the US? Or do you think it's going to ripple wider than that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there probably will be some wider ripples. I mean, in addition to the UK, the other thing to note is that Silicon Valley Bank played a really important role in tech ecosystems outside of the US and the UK, right? There was some reporting about the sort of um, bridge they play in enabling outside investment in Chinese tech startups, right, as one example. Um, I know for a fact that a lot of fintech companies operating in Latin America have uh, US-based investors or European-based investors that go through Silicon Valley Bank. So it was a bridge to a lot of different tech ecosystems around the world. So I think um, on sort of a smaller scale, all of those ecosystems will feel this as well. Again, hopefully, uh, you know, someone picks up the assets uh, of Silicon Valley Bank in the U.S. and there's not too much of a long-term disruption there. Um, And then I think, you know, again, kind of more globally, I do think that we sort of underestimated the impact that... uh, really low rates followed by skyrocketing interest rates would have on just banks' balance sheets generally. Um, As Benjamin said, this was not a problem that a lot of people were talking about uh, six months to a year ago, even though it was starting to show up on balance sheets. And I think there have been a lot of... um, Sort of mispricing of banks' uh, earnings and share reports, just based on the fact that some of these unrealized losses were not something that people were really taking into consideration. So I do think that in the U.S. and outside the U.S., we're going to see a little bit of a ripple effect, just in terms of how investors value banks. And you know, I I know for a fact on Twitter there are a lot of people who have become banking experts over the the last couple of days. And um, you know, banks are a difficult uh, type of company to understand and to value. And I think that as that understanding increases, we're going to see uh, some reactions in the market to that.
0: That's an awesome note to round us off on. Okay, well, this is a super important story. We're obviously going to keep coming back to it, I'm sure, over the coming weeks and probably months even so. But we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly.
4: Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is really easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com homebuying.
0: Okay, welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a note to go check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. Why should governments embrace new payment technologies? That's a question David Breer is asking in this Fintech and Blockchain Insider crossover episode with help from Maurizio Magaldi, Lord Holmes, and Yane Io. Ghostbusters said never cross the streams, but we did it anyway. Go check that out wherever you get this podcast. Why not queue it up in your podcast app after this one? Okay, let's get into our next story. This one comes from CNN Business. Under legal threat from GOP lawmakers, MasterCard and Visa pause plan to track gun sales. Visa, MasterCard and Discover announced they will pause a plan to implement a new merchant category code for U.S. gun retailers after political pressure from members of the Republican Party. In the wake of mass shootings, some financial companies, including MasterCard and Visa, explored the possibility of tracking gun sales through their payment systems. Advocates say this would help track suspicious transactions of firearms and ammunition and could help flag potential mass shooters and gun traffickers. Merchant codes track where a consumer has used a credit card but does not flag what specific items were purchased. Gun store sales have been classified under a general merchandise or sporting goods category. Republican officials said that adopting a new sales code for gun stores would harm the constitutional rights of gun owners and potentially violate consumer protection and antitrust laws. Several state lawmakers proposed legislation that would prevent the companies from using the new code. And under pressure, the companies have backed down. Um, Alex, as our resident North American, um, I'm going to come to you for your take on this one first. Where's the line between government and payment providers?
3: Yeah, I mean, I now I get to be the embarrassed American on the podcast because I'm i very disappointed in this decision personally. Um, I think it's a difficult line for Visa and MasterCard and Discover to, uh, to find because, I mean, obviously they are uh, first and foremost operators of a network that has to balance the interests of a lot of different constituencies. And there were definitely some that wanted to see this happen. There were others that did not. Um, So I wasn't, I guess, shocked that they had uh, sort of bowed down to the pressure on this. Um, It kind of became a bit of a flashpoint uh, in sort of our political discussions in the U.S. So I think that, you know, it was understandable from their perspective, but I I do think disappointing. Um, I think generally speaking, uh, a good sort of way to think about this is just that You know, the more data we have, the better. Right. And one of the things that you see crop up a lot as it relates to the uh, discussion about firearms is um, a desire to sort of limit the collection of data or even like the funding of studies to understand gun violence. There's a a very strong push in the U.S. to just restrict that, I guess, under the idea that like the less we know, the more uh, sort of we'll just be comfortable with the status quo. I personally am not comfortable with that, and I would have liked to have seen this go through just so that we would have had more granular data collection and an ability to inform future decisions about policies on gun control.
0: Benjamin, what was what was your view? Do you think this merchant category code would have made a big difference?
4: I think this is just really sad. Um, I sort of echo a lot of what Alex has just said. In practice merchant category codes are hard right does anyone know anybody who's spent time using merchant category codes to try and categorize transactions and so on knows it's quite hard right you know you buy from a big retailer you know at Walmart or Marks and Spencer or whatever they sell all sorts of stuff right so uh, merchant category codes doesn't work down to the line item so if somebody buys a gun along with 50 other things or they buy a gun from a store that sells a bunch of other things it doesn't necessarily identify it as a gun purchase however to the point i really don't see how Assigning a new merchant category code infringes anybody's constitutional right. You know, just being able to track something has no bearing on the rights. So I think this is really more about US politics than it is about fintech. Um, unfortunately, American politics over the last few past few years has become very toxic, very divided and very polarized. You know, we've seen that happening in many other societies as well. And it's hugely harmful. Of course, not as harmful as being shot. Um, but. Uh, so yeah, it's just it's just really sad. It's a shame. I agree with Alex. I think this could have done a little bit of good. I don't think it would have transformed anything. And I think it's political overreach.
0: Yeah, um, I will definitely defer to Alex on on the detail. But I suppose my understanding is that there's no federal law that requires gun owners to be registered. So I assume the kind of surveillance concern is that this becomes almost like a proxy for some sort of gun registration database or things like that. Alex, is that a fair, is that a fair way to read it?
3: I I think that's the concern on the part of uh, Republicans and conservatives in the U.S. And, you know, I mean, the the reality, the sad reality of the way that it works right now is that we do have some laws that um, try to require some level of uh, registration, getting information, checking certain lists to make sure that you're not selling guns to people who shouldn't have them. The reality is there's a huge number of loopholes in all of those laws, and um, there's – you know, roughly half the country that wants to see those loopholes closed and roughly half that doesn't. And I think this was a, uh, victory for those who want to see kind of the status quo continue as it is.
0: Mike, what, um, what role do you think private companies have for taking on societal issues? Like, you know, obviously you're speaking to a lot of fintechs and players in this space. How, where do they see their, their responsibilities as lying?
2: Um, (sighs) well i I think I mean, just to say as a general comment i've got no no view to express on this particular issue in the u you s know it's, it's it's for the u s to, to work out it's not something for me to give an opinion on i would perhaps as a comparison, we had a discussion today with a number of our members and uh, the government minister around push payment scams, which is currently um, uh, being consulted on in in the u k so people are being scammed um, in various financial rip-off situations, payments get put through, and there's a, there's a proposal that the payment provider should be on the hook for the refund. And the the payment companies are saying, well, hang on a minute, this is nothing to do with us. All we're doing is, is processing the payment. We've got nothing to do with the person who's caused the scam. We don't, don't know who they are. They're somewhere further down the, you know, the, the, the transaction line. Um, and I think that the payment industry feels that they're kind of being picked on because because they can be picked on because they're regulated and the government knows where they are. They can they can go after them and ask them to do these things rather than trying to tackle the more difficult question of where, where's the problem at source. And um, and I think this that, that, that seems to be another case where payment companies are trying to use payment companies to source data. Um, when perhaps you know, it's not the payment companies who should be the people being asked to do this.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's it's definitely a difficult balance. I guess payment companies also benefit hugely from having all of this data as well. Right? It puts and gives them an enormous uh, power to understand our lives and, and track what we're doing. So I guess you know, to bring a bit of Spider Man into I guess a great power comes great responsibility, right? But Benjamin, what's what's your your view?
4: I fundamentally, I think that's an issue for. Um, governments and for voters that choose those governments, um, you know, anytime you're sort of pushing private companies in to start fixing issues, it usually implies that, you know, somehow the government is failing to sort of address those issues. Sometimes, you know, because voters themselves are hugely divided or whatever. Um, I think it's very hard for companies to take strong positions on issues, whether they're ethical issues, or environmental issues, and so, you know, companies can take soft positions, but if they go too far, they start risk alienating some of their customers. It's not the function of companies to decide. It's the function of governments and voters to decide political issues. So, you know, I think companies can maybe nudge their customers in certain directions, but that's as far as they can go. It's really, this is, these are, we shouldn't, almost shouldn't be discussing this on FinTech Insider, because these are political issues, not, um, not FinTech issues.
0: I guess we've just, we have seen, I think, in recent times, I think a bit more of an overlap between politics and, and fintech, right? We were talking on the show not that long ago about um, the Republican Party in the U.S. also kind of pushing back against ESG investing. Um, I think, Alex, if I remember correctly, they used the term sort of woke capitalism. So, uh, yeah, yeah.
3: Well, and, and, and to tie it back to... Uh this SVB mess, uh, I will say that there have been uh, a few folks in the US who've been making the truly insane argument that somehow SVB was too woke uh, in order to pay attention to the risks that it was taking because some percentage of it's, and this is a real uh, argument that was made in the Wall Street Journal insanely, uh, that there was too many um, people who were on its board of directors who weren't uh, white men. Uh, in order to be able to avoid the crisis. This is like a real thing that was argued. So there is a strain of thinking, I think, in U.S. politics that um, anything that goes wrong is the fault of Uh, woke uh, reactions to things. And obviously, I think that goes way too far. But it kind of gives you a portrait into the divided nature of our politics right now, which makes it really hard to manage these things. And I I totally agree with Mike and Benjamin. I think that, you know, in a perfect world, all of this stuff would be solved by governments and by voters. Um, It's just not really the nature of our politics right now to be able to do that.
4: I'm totally and utterly appalled by the suggestion that having people who are not white men involved in decisions is the cause of problems. That's well, and I, I have to say, I mean,
3: yeah, like if you study any other bank failure in the history of the U.S., it was pretty much all white men who were at the exactly. helm driving those you know ships into the ground. So I think that that's a pretty clearly easy argument to uh, defang. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow.
0: (laughs) Sadly, podcasts do not capture facial expressions, but just for our listeners, I can tell there's a lot of very, I don't even know how to describe it, a lot of interesting facial expressions on the panel right now. Anyway, I will move us on to our next story, and that comes from AltFi, and it is that iWalker is introducing open banking-powered instant decisions for SME loans. Alternative lender iWalker is rolling out instant decisions within one minute for loans up to £25,000 with the help of European credit information company CRIF. The technology enables SMEs who have signed up for CRIF's open banking-powered credit passport service to pre-populate their applications and securely share their financial information. This one-minute approval beats iWalker's previous record of funding a business in two minutes and 37 seconds. For larger loan sizes up to £500,000, decisions will be made within 24 hours. Again, a vast improvement from before. To find out a little more about their new speedy approval process, we reached out to Harry Cranfield, partner channel manager at iWalker, to tell us more.
5: Partnerships like the one we've just launched with Credit Passport by CRIF are an important part of our strategy because we believe that small businesses should be able to access finance when and where they need it through the services that they use every day. That's why our embedded finance platform is designed to enable partners like CRIF to utilize the customer data that they have to make accessing and loans as seamless as possible for their small business customers. Instead of having to go to the bank, Iwaka comes to you. It's vital that small business owners should be able to access this finance quickly to make the most of any opportunities and to manage their cash flow effectively. With this new embedded finance partnership, SMEs using the Credit Passport service will be able to apply in just one minute for an Iwaka loan directly from their Credit Passport account. Iwaka will then be able to provide a credit decision for up to £25,000 within 30 seconds and normally quicker. This is a full credit approval that the business can draw down straight away. For larger loan requests, customers still receive a decision within 24 hours. Our whole customer journey from a small business owner applying to actually getting the money in the bank is self-serve and our record from first receiving a customer's details to them having the money is two minutes, 37 seconds.
0: Well, numbers sound pretty impressive. Mike, obviously, I'm going to come to you first, because at the top of the show, you, you kind of alluded to being interested in this sector. So how impressed are you by this?
2: Well, to declare a couple of interests first, I'm a shareholder in iWalker and have been for several years. So obviously, I love them. And they are a member of Innovate Finance. So I should share that, say those to start with. Um I mean, I, I think people often say, gosh, does it really matter if, the, if, if it's two minutes or, or 10 seconds? And I think that's the wrong question. That's the sort of analog question for a digital world. I think um, if you were designing a, a new loan process from scratch, having never seen one before, you would, you would design it to be as fast as you could. You wouldn't say, oh, you know, let's make it five minutes, 10 minutes, and let's make it two days or three days. Let's make them wait. You would just say, let's design it as quickly as we can. And um, as technology improves and as data improves, those decisions can be can be made much more quickly. So you know, yes, they, you know they're setting out how they've reduced it by a couple of minutes. But I think it it's, it illustrates how the technology and the data are moving on. And I think if you're a small business owner, um, you've got a hundred things on your to do list. You're in charge of marketing, sales, product design, purchasing, salaries, compliance, every, everything, and Getting a loan is just one of 100 things you've got to do that week. So, yeah, you, you want as a quicker decision as you can and you want a, a firmer decision as you can. And so the quicker it can be um, provided to you, then th- th- then that's great. It allows you to get on with everything else that you're doing that day rather than applying. And then you're sort of wondering for the rest of the day or for the week, you know, have I got the money? Am I able to buy that stock? Yeah, you want to know straight away. So I think the, the quicker it can be done, the better. And as I say, it reflects technology and data getting better and better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Benjamin, what was your view on this?
4: Yeah, I mean, I want to build on what Mike's saying because you know, superficially, you think, yeah, one minute, two minutes, three minutes doesn't necessarily make a big difference. But increasingly, finance is being tied to the things that the the small business is trying to do, right? So the small business that's trying to borrow, maybe it's trying to finance um, some kind of export or import, or it's trying to finance some new process, some investment. So if the finance is at the point of sale, and if you can get that decision within a minute, it helps that company take that decision of whether that thing can be done. And so you know, as you start as we start shifting to a world where small businesses are doing more and more of their trade, more and more of their decisions on digital business platforms, if the finance is integrated into that and you can get a decision within seconds or minutes, to Mike's point, that really takes a lot of pressure off small business owners because they can get stuff done faster because they can see, yes, I've got the financing for that or I can get the financing for that. So it, it sounds like it's a marginal improvement, but actually this is quite a big deal because in the future you'll be able to get that embedded finance at the point of need. Um, or not in the future. Now you'll get the finance at the point of need. So I think this is actually a bigger deal than it sounds, to Mike's point.
0: Sure. Alex, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I suppose, you know, is there a risk with removing too much friction from the lending process?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting question, right? One of the things I've seen come up in a lot of studies that have been done of small business lending is that um, – when you survey small business owners about uh, which um, lender they chose to work with, they to uh, Mike and Benjamin's point, they always choose the lender that um, can give them the money the fastest, right? So the question is really, you know, I need capital for X – how quickly can that capital show up in my bank account? And whichever provider can give me the quickest path there, I'm going to pick. And I've I've in the past compared uh, small business owners to like new parents that are staying up really late at night with their baby and they're worried because the baby's not sleeping and they have no idea what they're doing. And they go on Amazon and they buy, you know, $800 $800 worth of baby stuff that maybe will help or maybe won't, and they pay for rush shipping to have it there the next day. They're not making like a rational decision. They're making a decision based on what it takes to keep their baby alive. And so it's it's very much, I think, the same thing with small business owners. They they're need capital to stay alive, right? And when they need it, they need it as quickly as possible. To your point, though, I think the the other thing that comes out in those surveys is – a lot of times you'll then ask it with the benefit of hindsight, were you happy with that loan that you got? And, um, while lots of small business owners will work with fintech companies or other digital lenders that can get them the money, the fastest, the greatest levels of satisfaction actually tend to come with uh, community or regional banks or lenders that are a little bit more deliberate in the way that they work with, um, small businesses. And those benefits that you realize in hindsight are things like, well, they gave me the best price and this fintech lender didn't, or, uh, they gave me a uh, better customer service. So it wasn't just about the speed, but it was about the ongoing customer service that I got. So a lot of the benefits that come from a more, I think, deliberate process or a more sort of relationship-driven process are things that small business owners appreciate with the benefit of hindsight. But in the moment when you need capital, to Benjamin's point, you need it as quickly as possible. And if it can be embedded in the places that you want, even better. And so I think that, you know, from my perspective, this technology becoming more sort of ubiquitous in the industry hopefully should mean that we can bring the best of those two worlds together and we can bring more banks or others that have sort of relationships with these businesses into the places where they need the loans at the time that they need them and speed that whole process up. So I'm, I'm bullish on this trend overall, but I do think there is kind of a pro and a con there.
0: For sure. Mike, what do you think kind of the wider potential is for these credit passport systems? Like, Could they have a wider impact on the finances of SMEs more broadly, do you think?
2: I think possibly. When I talk to our members, they, they've they all got certain data sources that they'd like to get unlocked that would help them to make quicker decisions. And they're not all, they're not all necessarily the same data sources. So there are kind of two approaches. One is the, the passport approach, which is trying to gather everything into one place. And another is to individually Get the data sources unlocked, and then uh, the, the lenders can choose, pick, and choose which data sources that they want to uh, want to, to, to get to get hold of and, and use. So I think uh, both approaches are possible, and it, but overall, the lenders just want to be able to access more data and access it you know, through APIs and uh, very easily, and then they can make their credit decisioning much better.
0: Absolutely. Um- Always, always excited to cover on the show anything which can improve the experience for, for SMEs, um, as Alex so eloquently puts it, you know, that it is a really traumatic, I think actually when you're describing that new parent experience, I was actually worried that you'd been stalking me and, and watching me in, in, my, in my struggles with my toddler. But yeah, it's it's a very difficult uh, existence to be an SME, so anything that can, can help them is, is just an amazing thing and should be should be supported. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more Clickworthy news this week. Benjamin. Do you want to get started, please?
4: Yes. So this story was reported in Fintech Futures, which is that the Central Bank of Nigeria has published open banking guidelines. So the Central Bank has issued operational guidelines for open banking in Nigeria, making it the first in Africa to do so. The guidelines, which were released this week, encapsulate how banks and other financial institutions in Nigeria can access and share consumer data and outlines minimum requirements, responsibilities and expectations from participants. The central bank says the guidelines are anticipated to drive competition and improve access to financial and payment services in the country. The central bank had first begun work on the adoption of open banking in June 2017, with a regulatory framework being issued in February 2021. So really good news. Open banking has huge potential and makes a big difference. I mean, to the story, we were just talking about, you know, access to better data, being able to see um, the funding, the real-time transactions that a business has and so on helps in all sorts of ways, a business or a customer. The devil is in the detail of the guidelines and the standards, right? Are you bringing in standards that make it easy for everyone to work together? Have you got a central entity that's driving everyone to create a single sort of operational framework and a single set of standards. So if that's there, then this is fantastic news.
0: Fingers crossed. Okay, our next story in this section comes from Reuters, and that is that Mexican unicorn Clara has bagged $90 million in debt financing amid expansion. Mexican unicorn Clara has secured $90 million in fresh debt funding led by US debt provider ACL Capital, as it looks to boost its expansion in Latin America. The funds will help Clara, which offers corporate credit cards and expense management solutions, to increase its footprint in Brazil, where it wants to more than double its customer base. The company, which is now valued at over $1 billion, says Brazil is on track to become its biggest market by the end of 2024. Meanwhile, in Colombia, where Clara has over 1,300 clients, the money will help it establish a second office in the country, located in Medellin. Um, I love this story, but I should like follow Mike's lead. I should declare I'm biased because I'm always hugely interested in anything related to fintech coming out of Latam um, And if you haven't checked out already, I would really recommend having listened to episode 710 from a couple of weeks ago, where we had Cynthia Melos, the COO of Vexi, on talking about like their latest raise and giving some really great context on the market and the problems that credit card-focused fintechs in Mexico are facing into. So clearly, a ton of movement happening in this space in Mexico right now, and also across LATAM as a whole. In terms of this raise specifically, the one thing that I thought was interesting, given the macro context and everything we've talked about today on the show, was that Clara's CEO specifically called out that they had taken the debt financing route to allow them to separate money used to increase the liquidity solutions for their customers from that that they're using to invest in their team and their products. Um, So kind of having that, that kind of split and um, hopefully not storing it all in, in, in one bank account because that was kind of a criticism that was levied at a lot of the people that were impacted by the SVB. Um, but more importantly, you know, big congrats to the team. And if they need any help getting their second office set up in Colombia, please contact me immediately uh, as I've not been to Medellin yet, uh, but it's on my list. So uh, please do reach out. OK, let's bring everybody back for the final section looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This comes from CityM, and that is that the London Stock Exchange is calling on Logan Roy to rally the markets. The London Stock Exchange is pinning its hopes on a new figure to whip London's embattled capital markets into shape this month, Succession star Brian Cox. The 76-year-old Scottish actor will ring the bell at the London Stock Exchange on the 24th of March in a promotional stunt for the fourth and final series of the Murdoch-inspired drama. While electronic trading has done away with pit trading at most exchanges, opening bell ceremonies have an enduring resonance. The ringing of the bell is most associated with NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, where everyone from Hollywood actors to professional wrestlers have rung the bell." Um, First off, I feel like I'm probably like the only person on the planet by the sounds of it that has not watched Succession yet. So if we could avoid like any spoilers in our reaction to this story, I would be like personally very grateful. Um, But yeah, Alex, what do you reckon? Are you excited to see Logan Roy rocking the Sock Exchange?
3: I am yes. I mean, I think the uh, the Logan Roy energy is that um, he's unkillable and uh, no one can uh, take him down, regardless of the circumstances. And maybe that's the right sort of energy to be channeling uh, for the the London Stock Exchange these days. So I'm I'm all for it.
0: Benjamin, is it is this like a nice tradition that we should be keeping, or is it just a bit of pageantry that's gone too far?
4: I think this is probably great for HBO. It's not going to make a jot of difference to the London Stock Exchange, and I think the London Stock Exchange has got some bigger challenges than this. But you know, if it gets them some PR, great. Um, but I think there's bigger challenges. Mike, what do we? What do you reckon in this new
0: digital world? Is there any place for physical bells?
2: Well, Kate, I also haven't seen Succession, so I'm, I'm with you there. But um, I will say, when I was an investment banker and I led a number of IPOs. The IPO process is like a marathon. At the end of it, everyone is is, is almost dead, and being able to go onto the stock exchange to the ringing of the bell was a was a great sort of end end of the process for the team who had been working on it. So it kind of made it all feel feel worthwhile for them.
0: So it's more like a therapeutic or sort of like counselling tool than yes. than sort of an actual important part of our financial system. I think. Okay, no, that's that's.
2: Yeah, it's just a shame that obviously they've done away with the trading floor because it was different when you're ringing the bell over the trading floor. Now I think they're ringing the bell over the reception desk. Oh, which isn't quite the same.
0: <laughs> that does sound a bit odd. Um, okay, as is as is tradition for our funny stories, we're opening the fintech insider podcast exchange. Who should we who should we get on to ring ring our bell,
4: Benjamin? Oof, I wish I'd seen that question coming. Um, No, I don't have a good answer for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Alex, what do you reckon?
3: Uh, Okay, well, with the benefit of 10 seconds to think about it that Benjamin didn't have, um, maybe Patrick Collison from Stripe, right? Like Irish, so you could kind of have that connection, but then also like FinTech Unicorn just raised a bunch more money this week. So I I would pick Patrick Collison.
2: Mike, what about you? Well, I think it's got to be Elon Musk when he starts doing uh, financial services through Twitter.
0: That would definitely draw the crowds for sure. Yeah.
2: The first payment through Twitter. Ring the
0: bell, <laughs> uh, Benjamin. Have you had, have you come up with one yet?
4: I, I guess I'm just struggling with this whole concept of what's the point of someone ringing a bell? Um, so I mean, <laughs> I don't really see what's the point. Sorry. we've
0: taught it's a it's a deeply therapeutic moment. It's about you know letting it all out, coming together, celebrating success. No, not sold it to you. <laughs> I'm going to be deeply selfish and say, like, I want to ring the bell. I've always wanted to ring, like, a bell. Like, every time, like, you go to the churches and you kind of see people, like, ring the bells at weddings, I just think, like, that would be really fun. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to be really, really selfish and, and put myself forward for that. Okay, well, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you,
4: Benjamin? Well, given that I've just been rendered speechless by a question, I don't think anyone's going to want to find out any more about me. But if you do, I'm Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn, and you can find out more about what we're up to at 11fs.com. Awesome. Alex?
3: Yep. Um, spend an unhealthy amount of time on Twitter at Alex H underscore Johnson, and you can Google fintech takes to find my newsletter.
0: Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. And Mike, what about you?
2: Um, the Innovate Finance website or um You can come along in person to our uh, FinTech conference next month, 17th and 18th of April at the Guildhall in London, IFGS. You'll find details on the website if you want to come along and meet the team. We've got sessions running on all sorts of things, SVB, AI, Whole range of different uh, topics for fintech.
0: For sure, check it out. And as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or on Twitter, probably not quite as regularly as Alex, but at K8 Moody. Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at elevenfest.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.